Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 241 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the mystery of ancient Egyptian mummies. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. For thousands of years, the ancient Egyptians practiced mummification. When a person died, they would mummify his body so that it would be preserved and he could use it in the afterlife. There are even mummies connected with the Bible. But how they made mummies has been a mysterious subject. They kept the techniques used to do it a trade secret, known only to the embalmers or men of Anubis. Yet today, we've learned a tremendous amount about Egyptian mummies and how they were made. So what were the famous mummies connected with the Bible? How were mummies made? And what is modern science revealed about the process? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, with us again this week is the famous Egyptologist, Dr. Bob Breyer. Can you give us a refresher on who Dr. Breyer is? Sure. Um, according to his biography, Dr. Bob Breyer has traveled the world and published more than 10 books on the topics of Egyptology and mummies. Uh, he's affectionately known as Mr. Mummy, and Dr. Breyer is recognized as one of the world's foremost experts on mummies and Egyptology. He's Senior Research Fellow at Long Island University in Brookville, New York. He's conducted pioneering research in mummification practices and has investigated some of the world's most famous mummies, including King Tut, Ramesses the Great, Vladimir Lenin, Eva Perone, the Chinese noblewoman noble Marquise Tai, and the Medici family of Renaissance Italy. He is the author of The Murder of Tutankhamun, which we covered in episode 42 of Mysterious World. And his latest book is Tutankhamun and the Tomb that Changed the World. We'll have links to where you can get your own copy of both of those books, as well as how you can get Dr. Breyer's fantastic Great Courses series, The History of Ancient Egypt. Jimmy, today's episode deals with mummies, which are a form of dead bodies. Is there anything sensitive in the episode that listeners should know about? Well, we will be talking about death and dead bodies, but as always on Mysterious World, we'll be keeping things clinical. And as I said last week, we will briefly see some pictures of unwrapped mummies in the video version of the podcast. Uh, also, we'll be discussing how the Egyptians got the brain out of the body when they were mummifying it. Little boys all over the world know, based on what they've heard, that they got the brain out through the nose. Uh, that's just the kind of detail that little boys love to know. Uh, well, this week we will briefly mention a subject that they typically don't know, which is how they got the brain out through the nose. It is not what you would think. But it is a really brief mention, so, you know, there might be a momentary ooh, but nothing more than that. Anything else the listeners should know? Yeah, this episode contains a twist, something I'm not going to reveal at this time. 
but it has a direct bearing on today's mystery and how we learn about how mummies are made. So be sure and be listening uh, for that as we explore this fascinating subject. And before we get to that interview with Dr. Breyer, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Tony G., Austin L., Samuel E., Edward R., and Derek M. Their generous tax-deductible donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And without any further ado, let's go to your interview about the Egyptian mummies with Dr. Bob Breyer. So let's talk about mummies now. Um, mummies are very fascinating to people. I mean, we have all these movies about them that we've been making, you know, since the early 20th century. The first big one being Boris Karloff's The Mummy. And when I watched that for the first time as an adult, I think I'd seen it as a kid. But when I watched it for the first time as an adult, I was kind of surprised. Because I had in my mind all those Lon Chaney movies where Karis the mummy is lumbering about, you know, killing people. And the Boris Karloff original is really an art film. Uh, Boris Karloff, who plays the mummy, is barely in the bandages at all in the movie. He's like in one scene. And I was I was kind of like, I want my lumbering mummy fix. Um, but it was still a, a really interesting film. Also, we have mummies in museums. There was a whole mummy craze in the 19th century where people were in Europe were actually grinding up mummies and using mummy powder as a health tonic, which is totally creepy to my mind. <laughs> um, but uh, why are people so fascinated by mummies, do you think? Oh, I think I think they've cheated death. I mean, you know, if you look at a kid in a museum who's, who's staring at a mummy, they're really staring at him. They're, they're looking and trying to figure this thing out. He, he, he's been dead for 3,000 years, but he sure looks like a person. He hasn't rotted. He hasn't decayed. And I think it's almost like he's cheated death, and everybody wants a piece of that. Maybe it's possible. Maybe immortality is possible. So I think it, it, there's, a, there's a sense of envy when people look at mummies, not fear necessarily. Depends how you be, it's presented to you. I mean, you know, if it's not in a horror movie where the, this thing is going to kill you, um, I think you have a very different response to a mummy. Uh, there's a bit of envy there. Mm -hmm. Because of mummification, you can see, I mean, we have all these Egyptian mummies, including various pharaohs. And because of that, a lot of people don't realize this, but you can actually see the face of the probable pharaoh of the Exodus, someone who was in the Bible, who's mentioned in the Bible, and you can not only see a painting of him or a, a statue of him, you can actually see his face because we have his mummy. Who was that? That was Ramses the Great. Now, I, I think, I, I, I said this many years ago, and it sort of got picked up, that I think Ramses is the only face from the Bible you will ever see. I can't think mm -hmm. of any other biblical character who's 
face we have now. Do you um, know if we have Pharaoh Shoshank or Shishak's mummy? Because he's also mentioned in the Bible by name. Yeah, we don't. No, okay. Well, we have a skeleton. This is it's close. It's close. Um, mm-hmm. But but I think Ramses the Great is is really a central character in 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 the Old Testament. I mean, there's there's a there's an event Exodus that is crucial to the history of the Jews, and Ramses is is the central character in it. And we've got him. And I think what I find interesting is a lot of Jews don't realize we have him. I remember once I, I was sitting on an airplane next to an Orthodox Jew. And, and I, was, I was asking him, you know, why are you you're coming back from Egypt? And he said, no, no. He, he's coming back from Israel and just stopped and, and was rooted through here. Um, and I said to him, well, you should visit Egypt because it's the whole part of the Holy Land. And he said, no, not for me. And I said, wait a second. What about Ramses the Great? The Pharaoh of the Exodus, wouldn't you like to see him? I said, you have him? And he didn't really realize that we had the mummy. He didn't realize that there's, there's actual physical remains of the Bible in Egypt. You know, so I think, I think the mummy of Ramses is really a, a headliner, and, and, and more people should go see it. Now, uh, so Ramses the Great is also known as Ramses the Second, because there yes. were a whole, whole bunch of Ramses. Yes. What, can you tell us a little about his life apart from what's mentioned in the Bible. Yep. I mean, he like he had a really fantastically long reign, for example. Yes, he reigned for 67 years, right? Dies in his late 80s. And I can tell you that because we have his mummy. And we've x-rayed Cat Scandis. We know a lot about Ramses. Um, the thing that he's probably most famous for is being a warrior. On, the, on his temple walls, he repeatedly showed the same scene the Battle of Kadesh. Kadesh is a place in Syria where Ramses marches out with his 20,000 strong army in four divisions of 5,000 each. And there's chariots and there's spearmen and there's archers. And he defeats the, 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 the enemy. Now, the I Hittites. Think it, say it again. The Hittites. Yeah, the Hittites. I think Ramses didn't really defeat them as much as he said. Um, it sounds to me like it was a standoff. It was a it was a, a draw at the end. Ramses went home. The Hittites stayed there. Um, and in the end, there was a peace treaty drawn up. The first peace treaty we have in the history of the world. Right. But Ramses dined out on this thing forever for the rest of his life. As far as I know, he never went out to another battle. I think he was probably scared stiff um, and never went to another battle. Um, but he was happy to boast of this event for the rest of his life. So. Um, Ramses put it on as well, but he, he was happy to be called a warrior. We know that he had a hundred children, literally, literally. A pharaoh could have any number of wives and then concubines. And but there was only one great wife. We call her the Hemet Weret, the great wife. And there was only one great wife, and everybody else was minor, you know, after that. But he's also a great builder, to be fair to Ramses. He built one of the most remarkable temples ever, Abu Simbel. It's in the south. And it has four colossal statues, 67 feet high, colossal statues of Ramses the Great carved into the mountain. And I think that's the precursor for our Mount Rushmore. He also, <laughs> now, we have, the, um, we have the treaty that he made with the Hittites, and the Hittites yeah. were one of the um, major opponents of the Egyptians. There were like seven nations. They were nine. Perennial, nine, nine. That yeah, they the were, nine bows they were called. 
I was just going to mention, I was going to say seven, but the nine bows um, that uh, that they were regularly in conflict with. And my impression is kind of the Hittites were the greatest of those because they were a sort of rival empire in what's Turkey now. And since the Egyptians did not, they would sail up and down the Nile, but they wouldn't sail across the across the Mediterranean. So they would come into contact with the Hittites by going through Syria and what's now Israel and so forth around this, right. around the what's called the Levant. Levant, yeah. And they, that's why they would fight in that area regularly. And they had a lot of hostility with each other. But then Ramesses II makes this treaty with them. And in the Egyptian accounts of, of the ratification of the treaty, they're like having this big feast together. And they even comment on how, and the Egyptians and the Hittites sat down together and feasted without fighting. Yes. And it's such an amazing thing. We're palling around with the Hittites and we're not having to fight them. How weird is that? It was a remarkable event. Um, but it was remarkable for several reasons, a peace, a peace treaty. We don't have many peace treaties in Egypt. And the reason is they didn't want peace. The Egyptians wanted a constant state of war. Because they were the greatest power in the world for a very long time. And what they would do is they would march out to a foreign country, beat them up, and take back home anything that wasn't nailed down. So the army was a great source of revenue for Egypt. So they didn't want peace. No pharaoh ever campaigned on the, on, on the promise there will be peace in my time. No, no, no. You wanted to say, we defeated so-and-so, so-and-so is no longer, so-and-so is this. So they wanted war all the time. So that's a double reason why a peace treaty is really something special. Um, They just didn't want peace treaties. And like the pharaoh in Exodus, Ramesses II also lost some of his sons uh, before the end of his reign, correct? That's right. That's right. Um, As a matter of fact, you know, we, we have Ramesses often put on his temple walls lists of his sons. We can see long lists of the sons of Ramses II with their names. So we know, for example, that Chaim Wasid is number 13. We know that Merimpatai is number this. You know, we know this, this, this. So we know who died also, because after the name, some of them are called Maharu. They're deceased. So we know which ones died. And I think by the time Ramses died, he probably had 50 sons predecease him. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So before we leave the subject of Ramesses II's mummy, um, I want to mention something that a lot of listeners may not be aware of. But even though we have this figure, Ramesses II, who is mentioned in the Bible and who was mummified, what a lot of listeners may not know is there are actual mummies in the Bible. Um, if you read Genesis, uh, at the end of Genesis, it mentions two mummies. The first one was Israel himself, the patriarch Jacob. Um, this is from Genesis 50, verses 2 and 3. It says, and Joseph, that's Israel's son, right. Joseph, Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it for so many are required for embalming, and the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And then later in the chapter, when Joseph himself dies, we read, so Joseph died being 110 years old, 
and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, they eventually, they had taken Jacob's mummy back to the Holy Land to bury it, and then at the time of the Exodus, they brought Joseph's mummy with them. But I think a lot of listeners would just be amazed to learn, wow, Israel himself and his son were both mummified. And so we have these biblical Israelite mummies. Um, Also, because they didn't embalm people in ancient Israel, you know, they buried you the same day, they put you in the tomb, come back after a year when your flesh is decayed, clean your bones, put them in an ossuary or bone box. They didn't really embalm people. And so um, they wouldn't have been familiar with embalming. And I, I think that's why the author of Genesis, in explaining the mummification of Israel, says that 40 days were required for it. And then he clarifies that for the reader, for so many are required for embalming. It's like, no, really, it takes that long to embalm someone, that thing we don't do. Yeah, um, and, and, and yes, and, and obviously the only reason Joseph and Israel are, are embalmed, mummified, is that they were living in Egypt. There was no concept of this in Israel. So they, they had, in some sense, adopted some Egyptian customs. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing it mentions here is so it, it has this sort of two-phase thing happening with Israel where it says, you know, 40 days, which could be approximate, you know, you round to the nearest 10. And, but then the whole thing to do the embalming or a significant chunk of it, and then there was this 70-day period. How does that compare with what we know about mummification and mourning rites from Egyptian records? Is that accurate? I think it is. I think it is. Um, we know that the body was, was going to be placed in the tomb 70 days after death. This is why, for example, Tutankhamun's tomb is so small. He dies as a teenager. Nobody expected him to die then. So they hadn't prepared a big tomb for him. His tomb is the smallest in the Valley of the Kings of all the pharaohs. So they had to put him in the tomb in 70, after 70 days. They couldn't keep going for another 20 years, keep building and building and building. They weren't going to do that. So 70 days is just right in accordance with Egyptian custom. Okay. One more mummy before we talk about the process itself, and sure. that's that's Ramesses the third. So this is not Ramesses the Great; it's a later Ramesses. Right. And he, we talked about him in episode eighty nine of of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we described the, I love the concept, the black magic harem conspiracy, yeah, to off him and claim the throne for one of the children of one of his subordinate wives. Um, his mummy has had an outsized influence on the pop culture depiction <laughs> of mummies. Why is that? It's the way it looks. Um, the mummy has clearly been damaged by, by violence. Um, and we think, you know, recently, by the way, that mummy has been CAT scanned. So we, we know in some detail, it, it, it has been unwrapped. So you can, you can see the face and, 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 you can see that there's like what looks like an axe wound or something like that. Or, 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 and and he's, there's been some damage done. And we now know even that he was apparently attacked by several people at once because part of his foot is cut off with an axe also. So I think it, 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 it looks like a really grisly mummy. And this is the prototype for the stalking mummy who's going to kill everybody. Um, and that's why everybody thinks about, you know, the, the horrible mummy. It, it really, I think Ramsey's the, the third is, is sort of the prototype for that. 
there's also a problem with its neck, right? And that's kind of why you see like the heads Boris, off an angle. Yeah, yeah, Boris Karloff's mummy like that. Yeah, there's also, by the way, uh, bandages around it because his throat may have been slit, so they that you wouldn't want to see that. So there's a bandage around the neck, things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, I forgot one thing about Ramesses II. Do I recall correctly that he was a redhead? That we know that from his mummy. Um. Yes and no. Okay. Um. He does. The hair does look reddish. There's mm-hmm. no question about it. It may have been a result of some of the embalming processes. Okay. It may have been. But it, it, it certainly looks reddish. It does. Okay. Now, mummies were deposited in objects. We sometimes just call them coffins, but they're also known as sarcophaguses or sarcophagi. That's a term that comes from Greek. What does it mean and why are they called that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a coffin is different from a sarcophagus. Okay. A sarcophagus, by definition, is stone. Now, it doesn't refer to the shape. It can be a rectangular sarcophagus. It can be a anthropoid sarcophagus, the shape of a human, right? But as you say, it's a Greek word. And, and it comes from really two Greek roots. One is as in esophagus, to eat, right? Yeah. You, know, it, it's a, you, eat, you eat with your esophagus, yeah. Right? And then there's sar, as in sarcoma, it's flesh. So the box is a flesh eater. Now, the reason it's called a sarcophagus or flesh eater is that when the Greeks came into Egypt and they opened these sarcophagi and inside they saw a mummy and the mummy had been desiccated by mummification, it had been dehydrated. It looked like all the flesh was gone. So they called the boxes flesh eaters. Yeah. Or sometimes if the, if the, if the mummification hadn't been done well, you might be left with only bones then you'd really think it was a flesh eater. So the sarcophagus became called a flesh eater, and it's always the stone box. So the Egyptians then would put, they'd mummify you, they'd put you in a coffin or more than one coffin, and they'd put that in a sarcophagus. Um, Obviously, the purpose of the mummification was to preserve the body for the afterlife and resurrection. Um. When did they start and stop making mummies? Because I'm sure they weren't doing this, you know, 50,000 years ago, but they and they also weren't doing it after a certain point. What's the range when they were making mummies? Well, it, it, it's, an inter- it's, a, it's an interesting question you ask because you ask when they were making mummies. There were mummies in prehistoric times, but they weren't being made by people. In the earliest times in Egyptian history, the bodies were often just buried in the sand. And the hot, dry sand would dehydrate the body quickly, and it wouldn't decay. So you would get a natural mummy, a natural mummy. And I think this may have given rise to the idea of life after death, that nothing changes when you die. Because when the sands blow away and you see this body that's been there for maybe a few hundred years, and it still is a recognizable human being, it still has the skin on it, the flesh is there, um, I think you think, gee, nothing changed. So this may have given rise to the belief in life after death. But then, when the Egyptians started burying their dead in tombs, because the sand pit isn't a very protective um, device, um, they wanted to protect the body better to put it in a tomb, then they started to decay. <coughs> Excuse me, they weren't in contact with sand. That's when they had to artificially mummify. So, <coughs> excuse me. Artificial mummification starts about during the Old Kingdom, right? About 2500 BC, maybe around then, they're starting to do a lot of artificial mummification. 
and it lasts for 3,000 years. It lasts even into the Greek period. You know, the Greeks, as you mentioned, conquered Egypt, and they ruled for a couple hundred years. But in a sense, it wasn't the Greeks who conquered the Egypt. It was the Egyptians who conquered the Greeks, because the Greeks adopted Egyptian religion. They wanted to be mummified too, because why not? You get immortality. And even into the Roman period, we get Romans mummified, and they have these beautiful portraits on their mummies that are bound into the wrappings called Fayum portraits, because they were found in a section called the Fayum. So into the Roman period, they're still mummifying. Over that lengthy stretch of time, did the did the process of mummification change? If you look at an old kingdom mummy, will it be the same as a new kingdom mummy, or would they be different? We can tell the difference, but the process was still basically the same. It's just that they were doing it either better or worse. So, for example, one real difference that you can tell immediately um, is that in the Greek period, the wrapping technique is much more elaborate. They have these little diamond over diamond sort of wrapping techniques to give you a really fancy pattern of the wrapping. Whereas in earlier times, they didn't do that. But what these fancy wrappings are hiding is poor embalming technique. They very often didn't dehydrate the body thoroughly. And what you have inside these fancy wrappings is a, is a bunch of bones. So it does change over time. It does change over time. But at, at one point, for example, even, um, you know the, the internal organs were taken out at mummification because they're moist. You have to get them dehydrated also, or else bacteria will attack it. So they took the internal organs out, dehydrated them, and put them in canopic jars, jars, four jars, to hold the organs. And by magic, they'll all be put together when you resurrect in the next world. Well, at some point, everybody realized they were tomb robbers. And often, these canopic jars were broken, and the, and the, and the internal organs were thrown out. And that would be terrible. So at one point, what they did was they would dehydrate the organs and then put them inside the body again. So they wouldn't decay, but they'd be protected inside the thoracic cavity or the abdominal cavity, and you'd have it all together when you resurrected. So there were changes in mummification mm -hmm. techniques, but it's still basically the same procedure. Dehydrate the body, make sure it's all together, and it'll resurrect. I've read that in Old Kingdom mummies um, that they would often plaster them. And so an Old Kingdom mummy can look kind of like a statue. And they, at that stage, were not yet taking out the internal organs to dehydrate them. So inside that plaster statue, the, in, the body itself kind of fell apart. It, that, it, but, that's, that's right. And I mm -hmm. think plaster statue is a little bit like the Ka statue. Mm -hmm. The idea is that you've got this duplicate of the deceased anyway. So even if the mummification isn't so good, if it doesn't last, you've got this cost statue, so it's looking pretty good. Now, the people who did mummification were sometimes called the men of uh, the men of Anubis. Yes. And Anubis was the god associated with mummification. He's depicted as having a jackal head. Why would the jackal-headed god be associated with this? Now, first let me say this. Not all jackal gods were Anubis. There were many gods who were jackals, but they all were associated with death, all of them. So, for example, Anubis is the god of mummification. But there's another god who's called Wepwawit, a jackal, who's the opener of the way. He leads you to the next world. And there's another jackal god, Duamatef, who is 
a guardian of the internal organs. So you have lots of jackal gods. Now, the reason is that jackals have very special digestive systems. They can't digest fresh protein. They don't have the enzymes. So what they need is pre-digested protein, meaning decaying meat, meat that bacteria has already digested for them in some way. So what happens is they prowl cemeteries looking for cadavers, recently buried bodies. And when the Egyptians saw these jackals prowling in their, in their cemeteries, they associated them with death, and then they became gods of the dead. Right? So, for example, another jackal god is Sokar, and that's where we get the word Sakara from. The big cemetery in, in Egypt is called Sakara. It's the place of Sokar, a jackal. So if I have someone um, in my family who's died and I, I want to get them mummified, I take them to the men of to the men of Anubis. Right. And is there a standard mummification they do or are there different kinds that they would offer? Well, I think like anything, uh, it depends on what you can afford. Um, like a funeral. Wealthy people have fancier funerals than poor people. And it's the same here. There were really three basic sort of grades of mummification. And if you could afford it, you know, you'd have the full brain removed through the nose, the internal organs taken out, dehydrated. And on the lesser scale, on the, on, all the way on the, on the right, so to speak, was if you couldn't afford any mummification, they'd simply wrap you in a sheet and place you in a mass cave burial and hope for the best. So it's a really wide spectrum mummification. Okay. So did they, now we know a good bit about mummification today. Um, did they leave us like a, a manual, a how to mummify somebody manual, or have we had to figure it out other ways? The trade secret. We have no account of how to mummify a human. None at all. The closest we have, the closest we have is in the tomb of an embalmer. He showed his workshop, you know, like daily life scenes. And he showed his workshop. And I think it rings true. I, I've, I've looked at this tomb, you know, endlessly. Um, it, it shows a mummy who's wrapped. It doesn't show the actual embalming. They're not pulling out organs or anything like that. He's wrapped. But what I found fascinating is the mummy is not on a table. He's not. He's placed on two blocks of, of wood. And he's sort of spanning it like a bridge. And the reason for that is if you're going to wrap a mummy, you don't want to have to keep lifting them off the table, put your bandages under, lift them off the table, put your bandages under. Here he's on blocks. You can just keep passing your bandage around and around and around and around and wrap them more efficiently. So it rings true. But no, we don't have any account of how to mummify a human. You know, it, it just struck me. If, if your job in the fields of Osiris is the same as your job in life, what do you do if you were, an, if you were a mummifier, if you were a a man Absolutely. of Anubis. <laughs> well, I never thought of that. There's nobody to mummify, huh? I mean, you yeah. think die in the next world? I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, very interesting question. Presumably, Anubis, uh, presumably Anubis would have something for you to do, but it, no, you, that might be an exception. That's right. Very good. So here's uh, the twist that I promised the listeners at the beginning of this episode in the pre-recorded segment we did. You have an unusual insight into the process of mummification. And the reason for that is you have actually made a mummy for real, not a mock-up, not a simulation. You have made 
a real mummy. Tell us about that. Guilty. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I, I did. Um, as I was reading, I have an anatomy background. I, I know human anatomy. and I'm not squeamish about bodies and things like that. As I started reading accounts in Egyptology journals, in Egyptology books about mummification, there were certain things that didn't make sense to me, just didn't seem right. And I realized at one point that we really didn't know how the Egyptians mummified a body. For example, just an example, we know that they made a small incision in the abdomen and removed the internal organs through that, about three and a half inch incision. Well, I wondered, can you really get a liver out of a three and a half inch incision? I mean, the liver is the largest organ in your body. I mean, it's not easy. Or how does the brain come out through the nose? I mean, they always describe this thing as the mummy is lying on its back. You have an instrument that's a little bit like a coat hanger with a hook on the end. You put it in through the nose. You break through the cribriform plate, which is a little bone behind the nose. You go into the cranium and you start pulling out the brain a little piece at a time so it doesn't decay inside the cranium. Does that work? Can you really do it that way? I wonder. Or, for example, we knew that they dehydrated the bodies with natron, which is a naturally occurring compound of salt and baking soda, a white powder, a white crystallized powder. How much did you need for mummification? Will it really work? So all these questions I knew were unanswered. And the only way you could really answer them was empirically, by doing it. So I decided that I would mummify a human cadaver in the ancient Egyptian way to answer these questions so we would finally know the ins and outs of how you mummified in ancient Egypt. So this was a, a person who had donated their body to science. Exactly. Was, a body yeah. donor, as we call them. Yes. Okay. And um, so you, you get the body and you and a colleague start the mummification process. Right. What do you do? Well, even before, um, we have to get our tools ready. We had tools made that looked just like ancient Egyptian tools. Um, I had to get the natron, the salt for dehydrating the body. So I went to Egypt, to the Wadi Natrun, the Valley of Natron, and dug my natron where the ancient embalmers dug theirs and brought back 400 pounds of it. Um, I, I made an embalmer's board just the way they did um, with hand tools and uh, dowels. I, I, I did everything the Egyptian way. I, I had copper tools and bronze tools. I had I also used obsidian, which is volcanic glass, and that is sharper than anything, you know, I've ever used. The Egyptians had obsidian for making sharp cuts, and that's, I'm sure, what the embalmers used, because they, we do have a text that says, a Greek text that says they used a sharp Ethiopian stone. Now, when they say Ethiopian stone, Ethiopian doesn't refer to a geographical area. It means burnt face. It's the place where the blacks lived. They had burnt faces. So when you say an Ethiopian stone, you mean it's black, and that's obsidian, volcanic glass. So I had obsidian blades flaked for me by people who are skilled in the, in the American Southwest in Arizona, a fellow named Jim Imey who does this. He flaked my tools for me, my obsidian blades. So first, before I did anything, I had to assemble my tools. I needed linen, pure white linen, because that's what the Egyptians used. They didn't have cotton in ancient Egypt. Linen comes from the flax plant. So I got Egyptian linen. I needed some kind of alcohol, <coughs> excuse me, for, for 
swabbing out the internal organs. They use beer. The Egyptians use beer. So I found a kind of beer that was made in, in, in Africa that worked pretty well. Um, so I got everything together. It, was, it, was, it took a year before I could really do it. Um, and then I finally had my cadaver. And even before I started the mummification proper, I did some tests. I wanted to see, can I really get a brain out through the nose the way they describe it, the way Egyptologists described it? And, and you found out something really amazing here that I know is going to be of great interest to the little boys in the audience. Right, right. They always how, this, the, how, how do you get yeah. a brain out through the nose, right? Yeah. Well, I was given a couple of, from the anatomy department, I was given a couple of severed heads to practice on. And I, I tried with the hook getting the brain out a little piece at a time. It doesn't come out. It does not come out at all. And then I realized there's another way to do it. I put the hook and, in. And it wouldn't come out because the brain's kind of like tofu. The hook will just go right That's through right. The hook comes out and brain doesn't adhere to it. It doesn't, it's not, it's not solid enough. So I put the hook in and this time, rather than trying to pull out a little bit of the brain at a time, I used it kind of like a kitchen whisk. I rotated it and I liquefied the brain. I, I beat down the brain, liquefied it. I inverted the cadaver. And it ran out through the nose, kind of like a strawberry milkshake, right? So that's how they got the brain out. And that, by the way, is why we never find brains in tombs, because it's liquefied and it looks like nothing. You're not going to keep it. So that's one thing they threw out. I think they, they didn't really realize the function of the brain. I think they, they thought it was kind of like just packing in the head, because you thought with your heart, and that, that's what you did. So, yeah, so I mummified a human cadaver to try to fill in the gaps of how the ancient Egyptians did it. And you used the natron, did it, you packed it in natron for like 35 days, that corresponded? Yeah, it, yeah 40, it, your biblical 40 days of, you know, Joe, yeah, I, I did that, and um, it dehydrated pretty well, it looked, it looked pretty good. Um, but, you know, one thing I, I did wrong, which, this is why you do it, you learn. When I removed the natron, it looked like an ancient Egyptian mummy, it really looked mm -hmm. very good. <clears throat> However, so, so they look that way not because of the three thousand years, no, but because of the mummification process. Exactly, it's the process that does it. That's why a mummy looks like it looks. Now, one of the things I felt was the mummy looked like it might have a little bit more moisture in it. So I put it. You know, I want to get it all out. I don't want to make sure my mummy doesn't doesn't decay. So I put it back in this little tent that we had kept it in. We kept it in a tent to, to mimic the conditions in Egypt. We kept it at twenty percent humidity and about 90%, hundred up to 105 degrees. So it's hot and it's dry, just like in Egypt. So I put it back for a couple of months in this tent, and then I took it out to wrap it. And that's when I learned I had made a mistake. The body was very stiff and rigid. All the, all the moisture was out of it. And when I wanted to cross the arms on the chest, like pharaohs, you see that pose of a mummy, I couldn't do it because the arms were so stiff, I would have broken. And that's why I think it says 70 days back in the tomb, that after 70 days, there's enough moisture in the body that you can flex it a little bit, but it's not enough moisture that bacteria are going to attack it and it'll decay. So they knew what they were doing. I didn't. So I learned that 70 days was important, not just as a religious ritual, but as a practical consideration for mummification. Now, as part of this experiment, you were not only trying to learn what they did, but this has continuing scientific value. I understand you've had 
requests to compare your mummy to Egyptian mummies and that you're hoping that this will be useful for doing comparisons hundreds of years from now even. Absolutely. Our mummy is the only Egyptian mummy, Egyptian in quotes, is the only Egyptian-style mummy for which we know everything that it was done. We know exactly how the brain was removed. We know how big the incision was. We know how this was done, how long in nature, and we know everything. So now we can compare our mummy with the real ancient Egyptian mummy and, and sort of figure backwards, oh, they must have done it this way. They must have done it this way. So yeah, it, it's a tool. It's a research tool now. One of the things that you did, because I know you were trying to be as authentic as possible, yes. was um, include like amulets. Uh, the people right. may not be aware of this, but the bandages that mummies are wrapped in, those bandages have names and you're supposed to say incantations when you put them on and you have magical spells written on them. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and you put amulets in them. One, and y'all did all that. One of the amulets that we find in ancient Egyptian mummies is a scarab or hefer, a beetle amulet that was placed over the heart. Right. And there is an incantation on that. What's the purpose of the scarab amulet that they buried them with over the heart? Ah, yeah, the heart scarab. Well, the scarab is an interesting amulet. It's, it's, it's really interesting. It, like you say, the ancient Egyptian word for beetle, B-E-E-T-L-E, was kepper, kepper. But it was also the ancient Egyptian word for exist, right? It was, a, it was a pun. It's a play on words. So if you had a little amulet in the shape of a beetle, you would exist forever. So that's, they wore them all the time in life. They had loads of jewelry with amulets, things like that. But the heart scarab is something different, that you, the one that you're asking about. The heart scarab is much larger. It's about the size of your fist. And it's placed over the heart of the deceased. And it has a magical spell on it. Now, the magical spell is kind of interesting. It has to do with the chapter 125, the, the Book of the Dead, the judgment scene, where you're going to get up and make the negative plea. And you're going to say, I haven't done this. I haven't done that. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't diverted the irrigation ditch. And the purpose of this scarab is to make sure that your heart doesn't get up and say, wait, he's lying. He's lying. <laughs> so it's to keep your heart quiet. So the idea on the scarab, it says, Oh, heart of my mother, heart of my mother, stand not up against me in the tribunal. So when you're being judged, you're saying, keep your mouth shut, heart. Just let me say what I'm saying and we'll be okay. So it's essentially a, a lie detector defeater. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, one ceremony that they would do, I know with Pharaohs, I don't know if they did it for others or not, but one ceremony that I know they would do is called the opening of the mouth ceremony. What was the purpose? What was that and what was its purpose? Yeah, the opening of the mouth ceremony was crucial. And you can see a wonderful depiction of it in Tutankhamun's tomb. Um, it shows his successor, the Pharaoh I, doing this ritual. And the purpose was that the Pharaoh I in this scene is taking a little tool called an adze. It's a, it's a farming tool. Um, and he touches it to the mouth of the deceased. And he says, you're young again, you live again, you're young again, you live again. And the purpose is to open the mouth so that in the next world, you will have breath and the power to speak so you can say the magical spells you need to get up and go again. So remember, you're a mummy, you're wrapped, you know, your mouth is going, you can't say anything. Um, and this is to make sure that you have breath and speech in the next world. Okay. Anything else we should know about mummification? No, I think you've covered it. I mean, 
I'm sure little boys will think of other questions, but uh, <laughs> yeah. no, I think but that that's that's mummies. Okay. One last question. Um, sure. Suppose I have a mummy, and I'm not saying that I do, but suppose I have a mummy and I want to reanimate it. What's the best place to get Tana leaves? <laughs> Tana I leaves is in the movie, <laughs> in the movie, the mummy movie. But, 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 but the Egyptians didn't use Tana leaves, and I'm not sure what Tana leaves are. Yeah, they're they're actually fictional, but I was hoping I could order them on Amazon. Right. No, but uh, <laughs> no, won't do it. Okay. Well, Dr. Bob Breyer, thank you so much for joining us on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. It's been a pleasure, Jimmy. Thank you for having me on. Oh, before we go, tell us a little bit just about your book, your newest book, so that uh, oh, yes. people will know a little more so they can get it. Buy my book. Buy my book. Uh, <laughs> well, it, it, it's called Tutankhamun and the Tomb that Changed the World. And one of the things I do in the book is I try to survey all the research that's been done on Tutankhamun since the discovery of the tomb. And there's plenty. And I have a lot of fun chapters, fun things. For example, I have one chapter that I think a lot of people, some people, will be disappointed in because of the title. It's called It Came From Outer Space. <laughs> and, it, and it's not ancient aliens. That's why I say some people will be disappointed. Um, I don't do ancient aliens. Um, it's, it's about some of the iron objects in Tutankhamun's tomb. When Tutankhamun was pharaoh, Egypt hadn't had iron yet. They were still only doing copper and bronze. So where did this iron dagger come from, for example? Um, and the answer is, it came from outer space. It's made out of meteoritic iron. They, they found an, a meteorite, and someone hammered out the blade from it. So there are a few iron objects in there. So that's the kind of thing I talk about, the research. But I also talk a lot about the religion, the ancient Egyptian religion, and why they did all these things, and why Tutankhamun was buried that way. But some of the other things I think people don't realize is that we get many things from Tutankhamun's tomb. And when I say in the book, you know, it's, the tomb that changed the world. I really mean it. It changed the world. Just one example, which is kind of fun, a fun example. Um, Tutankhamun, you know that in the 1970s, for the first time, there was a major exhibition of Tutankhamun objects. And it toured America. You know, it went to England first, but it toured America. Steve Martin did his King Tut song. Yes, and that's the point I want to make. Um, now, people don't realize this. The blockbuster exhibit, the idea of a really spectacular exhibit of art of any kind, in this case, it's Egyptian art, it's Tutankhamun, the idea of a blockbuster exhibit comes from King Tut. Only it's the first blockbuster exhibit ever. It's the first time that museums realize that if we have a really big, fabulous exhibit, people will come to see it, pay for admission tickets, and we'll make a fortune in the gift shop. And that's exactly what happened with Tutankhamun. It was the first blockbuster exhibit. So he gives the world a blockbuster exhibit. Now, when Steve Martin on Saturday Night Live is singing that famous song, you know, born in Babylonia, built a condo made of stone, a king cut. He's also singing about the museums and, and, and the, the finances of it. He says, if I'd have known people line up to see him, I'd have taken all my money and bought me a museum. So the idea was that he was he was pretty hip about all the finances of this thing. So that's another thing I cover of how Tutankhamun, in a sense, invents the blockbuster exhibit. But there's even more. Ultimately, ultimately, Egypt threw off colonialism. Egypt was being ruled by the Brits when Tuts discovered. They threw off colonialism because of Tutankhamun. They realized that this was their heritage, and the Brits were telling them what to do with their heritage. And it led to activism and, and, and all kinds of things. So in a sense, Egypt is independent of, of British rule today because of Tut. He became the poster boy for freedom and independence. So there's 
There's a lot about Tutankhamun that people don't know. And that's what I tried to do in the book. I tried to show um, all the different aspects of Titus. I think it's a good read. I think people like it so far. Oh, it's definitely a good read. I've read it myself, and oh, I, highly, I highly recommend it to the listeners. And in the show notes, we'll have a link to where you can get your copy of Dr. Breyer's latest book, Tutankhamun and the Tomb That Changed the World. Thank you for that plug, Jimmy. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. It's a great read. And thanks once again for joining us on Mysterious World. A pleasure, really. So that does it for today's interview with Dr. Bob Breyer about Egyptian mummies. Jimmy, is there anything else we should say before we go? I'd just like to thank uh, Dr. Breyer once again for appearing on today's program. He's very knowledgeable and a great communicator, and I've appreciated his work for a long time. And I hope you'll get some of his books and courses so that you can learn from him, too. And, Jimmy, what are the links? Uh, what information do we have about those further resources? We'll have a link to Dr. Breyer's uh, book, Tutankhamun and the Tomb That Changed the World. That's his most recent book that we were talking about. Also, his earlier book, The Murder of Tutankhamun, his great courses, History of Ancient Egypt series. We'll have a link to the audio version of that. Also, his author page on Amazon and his personal web page. Finally, we'll have links to Steve Martin's King Tut song, including the famous Saturday Night Live version. Excellent. So that's it from us. We would love to hear your theories about the mystery of ancient Egyptian mummies. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work on this episode. You can see what they do uh, by going to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And, um, you know, if you have video work and you like what they do on Mysterious World, give them your business. Also, while you're at YouTube, I am trying to grow my channel, and I'd really appreciate it if you subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always receive a notification, whether it's for one of my Mysterious World videos or for a video I do on something else. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're leaving the deserts of Egypt to come to the desert southwest of America, uh, where it can be really, really dry if the rains don't come. And so we're, we'll be talking about people who have tried to make it rain. Uh, among others, we're going to be discussing Charles Hatfield, the most famous rainmaker of all time, and the dramatic events that occurred when he came here and made it rain in San Diego, California. Folks, be sure to get your very own Mysterious World t-shirt, mug, and more in our merchandise shop at sqpn.com slash merch. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 241. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by 
Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com. F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, PlayStation Portable. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash PSP.